Good morning, everybody. And so another statistic is though, even though wealthy people give a lot of money, less wealthy people give proportionately more money. You know, of your income, the pool of income that you have to give is people who have actually less income that give a higher percentage of their income away. So it looks like wealthy people are very generous and give away lots of money and they do, but it's a much smaller percentage of their total income. And so again, when you're thinking about fund development, there's a part of you that thinks, oh, let's go after the wealthy people, but also the less wealthy people tend to be very generous relative to their total income. And so it's just, it's helpful to realize that it isn't just the wealthy people who give, but even lower income people in large numbers can make a big contribution. So the crowdsourcing movement is an example of that, where you, if you get a large scale number of people to give, that can really increase your bottom line. So today's uh, focus is on accountability. And I always think accountability <laughs> is, a, is an interesting term, interesting concept that sometimes is misunderstood, sometimes is abused or exploited. And so my question with regards to accountability, broadly speaking, like big picture, is what does it mean to be accountable? What is this concept of being accountable? What, from your knowledge or your experience, what does it mean to be accountable? Yeah. Being held responsible for uh, the position that you want to take or anything, any, any job that, that you're required to handle. Okay, so being uh, responsible, being held responsible for, for your position, for your actions, for your, for your job. What other aspects of accountability come to mind? Yeah. Liability. Okay. Yeah. So there are consequences for, like, when you get held accountable and if you fall short or if you don't meet standards, then there's going to be consequences or liability for that. Yeah. Also, that you just you answer to someone else. There's someone that, that you have to give an account to. Yeah. Like the public. Yeah. So that there is a there's a, another person involved in this process. You, you can sort of be accountable to yourself. You can lie to yourself pretty easily and, and skirt around the truth. So so this is an interesting issue with the presidential elections, with the debates. I don't know if you caught this when Trump was talking about his income taxes, and he, he basically said, um, you know, Hillary accused him of saying, you know, you haven't paid any taxes, and he says, because I'm smart. A smart person wouldn't pay taxes. And if you, if you look at it and listen to it, what he's basically saying is that the way the laws are set up, I've figured out how to work it so that I don't have to pay any taxes, or just like the bankruptcies, the four, four different bankruptcies that he filed for, each of them was probably legal. And so he knows the laws, and so he's working in such a way that he's taking full advantage of the law. And, and so in, on one level, you can't fault him because, well, that's the way the laws are set up. And he's saying, hey, if you change the laws, then I can't do that anymore. But right now, the laws are such that what I'm doing is legal. You might not agree with it. You might not think it's the most upstanding thing to do, but it's legal. And if I'm being held accountable and the standard is the law, then I've done nothing wrong. And so what you're kind of saying is, yeah, but there's being accountable, there's sort of this ethics and there's morals that's broader than just the letter of the law. So, so yeah, when we think about accountability, there's the law, but then there's also sort of the, the broader public that you're accountable to or, or sort of beyond just the letter of the law. And that's what we're going to be looking at is both the law, but then also the broader sort of public that you're held accountable to. I think it was Jordan and I talking, giving an account of your actions. You know, if you think about the root of the word, being accountable is giving an account of your actions. And I do this with my kids all the time. You know, my son uh, had a rough day yesterday. <laughs> 
And uh, so he, he lost his privileges for in the evening. He couldn't go outside and play. And he says, I'm mad at mom. I said, well, why are you mad at mom? Because she says I can't go out and play. And I said, well, why can't you go out and play? He goes, because mom said I can't. And I go, well, mom isn't sort of this random authoritarian person that's just going to say, you cannot play. I go, well, what, what happened? And eventually he gave an account of how he had hit his sister. And the consequence for hitting his sister was that he can't go out and play. But in a sense, giving an account is telling the story versus, I guess I guess there's different accounts. His account was, mom took away my, my privileges, but another account of that is that I hit my sister, and so I lost the opportunity, you know, I lost some privileges because of that. But so if you think of accountability is retelling the story or explaining the outcomes, like how did we arrive at this place? And it's retelling the story and, and even having the data to tell that story if you're an organization. And then the other part of that, and this is where it goes back to my son, or what we talk about is owning things, taking responsibility for your actions. So when we talk about accountability, overwhelming <coughs> tendency is to blame other people, other things for why the outcome occurred. And so again, my son was the perfect example because he said, well, she stuck her tongue out at me. You know, my sister stuck her tongue on me. That's why I hit her. And I said, Josh, why do you... I, I can't believe that Emily has such power over you that she can just look at you or stick her tongue at you and cause your arm to go and hit her. I go, that is unbelievable. I didn't realize, I mean, she's only four, he's eight. I go, she has so much power over you. That's just unbelievable that she that she has so much control over her that she can cause you to hit her. Or was it that you chose to respond in a certain way? You know, what she did, whether it's right or wrong, you had a choice in how you responded to her. And you chose a certain action. And so when we think of accountability, it's in the context of taking responsibility <laughs> for your actions, owning, yes, this is what I did. It wasn't a smart move. I could have done it a different way, but I own the that's what I did. That's the action that I did. So, and when we're talking about accountability, it's this broader, bigger picture, not just, you know, your organization and the finances, but it's like the broader aspect of being held accountable for your actions and taking responsible for your actions. And so in this, you know, what we're usually familiar with is this idea of negative accountability. Just you know, the example of, of my son, where it's making sure that you don't mess up, that you avoid transgressions. Can you guys think of examples where you're held accountable and it's this idea of negative accountability, like making sure you don't mess up? So when there's contribution that comes into your organization, there's different regulations on how you spend that money or else you'll get in trouble. So yeah. Other examples of negative accountability that you can think of. So like timesheets is another form of make sure you do the work that you're that you're doing. Okay. And that might even be potentially positive accountability, like we want to make sure that you fulfill your, you know, what you said you would do. So what I want to look at also, so there's the negative accountability, which is usually what we're familiar with, and usually it's this sort of like, I hope I don't get caught type of thing, and that's, you know, so even our relationship with accountability is one such that, yeah, we might be doing something that isn't completely along the straight and narrow, and I just, I hope I don't get caught, or I don't deviate too much, and depends who I'm accountable to, and how often they ask me, and how much they enforce it. The 
other aspect of accountability, which I think gets overlooked, and I actually think is a potentially highly valuable aspect of accountability and a very motivating aspect is this idea of positive accountability. It's making sure that you'll do the things that you'll say you'll do. And so it's this idea of here's a, a standard that I want to aspire to. And probably the, the best example I can think of is if you have a physical trainer, you know, so if you're a, an athlete and you're competing, okay, what are your goals in, in these different athletic arenas or in your physical performance? And I'm going to come alongside you and help you accomplish those goals. And, and so like another example would be, I don't know if it's still on TV or not, but The Biggest Loser. If you ever watch The Biggest Loser where you have people who are overweight who want to lose weight, they have a personal coach who they're accountable to. Like, what did you eat yesterday? And how much did you work out? And what are your sleep habits like? There's a way that can coach provides positive accountability because the person says, this is what I want, this is my goal. And so then you have a coach coming in and helping you accomplish that goal. Can you guys think of examples in your own life where you've been the beneficiary of positive accountability? And you see it like, wow, that actually, that worked well for me. Like on a sports team, Jordan, uh, my cross country team in high school had this system where on Saturdays we would run twice. Uh -huh. it, was, it wasn't like you had to, yeah. but you knew that if you stuck to the program and did that from, I don't know, so many miles on Saturday, that you would succeed in whatever your goal is. And how did accountability work in that context? When I think of positive accountability, I think of it as not, you know, like if you don't do it, or negative is like you'll get in trouble, but like positive is just you're going above and beyond what you really could have done. Mm -hmm. So like you could have just run once on Saturday, but instead you ran twice. Yeah. And then that made you better. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, you know, you felt yeah. it. Well, and, and I, so I go running with uh, a group of guys on Friday mornings at 6.30 in the morning. I don't normally get up at 6.30 in the morning, but because I know that they're going to be there at 6.30, and I've committed to run with them at 6.30, I'm much more likely to show up and go running. Whereas if I was just by myself and it's 6.30 in the morning on, on Friday, the likelihood of me getting up is much lower. Whereas when I know there's other guys waiting to go running, then that accountability is positive reinforcement and motivates me to get out of bed. And really it motivates me to accomplish what I want to do. It's, so it's a positive accountability. Now there's, the only negative would be public shaming, like, oh, you know, Fulton didn't show up. What's it, you know, how come? But it's, there's not really, I don't get penal, I don't get fined, I don't lose money, or I don't get, there isn't these negative consequences, it's just more I miss out. Any other I, examples where, where you've seen in your own life that you actually, you do well when there's positive accountability, whether it be coursework or, yeah. If you had chores by your parents, whatever, and then you got an allowance. Oh, yeah. So that's a, a motivating thing of that, okay, here's a list of chores and here's the, the positive reinforcement that would happen with that. So that would be a, another example. I think the thing is, is that it's all over the place. Like I think of if you've ever gone to a counselor uh, or a psychologist to work through whatever issues are going on in your life, what's interesting is the reason why that can be so effective is because you're actually oftentimes paying the counselor to go meet with them for an hour to focus on this specific area or issue of your life. And it's because you've actually paid to go see that counselor that you've committed to setting aside time to address this issue. Whereas if, if you didn't have that accountability to go show up, you would continue to put off dealing with that issue. And so years would go on 
where you, you know you have this issue that's unaddressed, but it isn't until you actually sit down with someone and talk with them once a week or every other week that you actually begin to work through whatever issue it is. And so there's this idea, this accountability, like, okay, I'm going to show up because I made a commitment. I've paid all this money to see this counselor, and I'm not going to bail on it. And it also happens with like groups like Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, the, the reason why Alcoholics Anonymous is so effective is purely because of the accountability, the support structure that's there. So if you're someone struggling with alcoholism or you have a family member who struggles with alcoholism, being a part of a support group provides this, this positive accountability, which enables people people to work through their addiction in powerful and significant ways. And so I guess what I'm saying is that accountability often has a bad rap. Like we don't want to be held accountable. Like that's what we avoid often. I don't want to be held accountable. I don't want to have to take responsibility for my actions. But if you view it in the positive domain, it can actually help you to accomplish substantial things, things that you would think otherwise I wouldn't be able to do. But if you're in a regimen or a system where there's positive accountability, you can actually accomplish significant things, whether it's in the academic life, whether it's in sports or organizational work, you know, whatever it is, if you have that beneficial. So I say all that to maybe change your perspective on how you view accountability and the potential upside of it. In terms of for you personally, like if you think of all the different areas of your life, what are the areas you might be held accountable? So just in your own personal life, what are the what are the areas in which you're you're held accountable typically? Yeah. Okay, who are you held accountable by? So there's accountability with, with getting the assignments in time. But yeah, so you held accountable by your parents for, for school stuff. What other stuff are you accountable to? Yeah. Um, I'm a supervisor. I had a job through IU and clock in every week. And especially with IU, I'm accountable to make sure that I don't go over 30 hours a week. Yeah, and so in many aspects of accountability, the level of scrutiny is it varies you know you could have some employers who have high trust and you know sort of say if you clock in I assume you're working another one sort of one an itemization of how you spend your time so there's variation in the strictness of the accountability or the specificity of accountability any other areas in your life where you're like oh yeah I'm, I'm accountable in this arena yeah. Um, I have a scholarship, and so I'm held accountable with like, the criteria of the scholarship, otherwise I'll lose it. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, I had a, a, a student here who, forget what scholar he was, but you needed to maintain uh, 3.3 or something, and he got a 3.29 and lost the scholarship. And he was an out-of-state person, and so it was like $80,000 he experienced. So. so yeah, I mean, so there's real, there's real-life consequences to not fulfilling the, the commitments of, of whatever it is that you're doing. So in what ways, when we think of either your own personal life or, or organizations, in what ways can it be beneficial to be held accountable? Like what are the benefits that you see either personally or as an organization for being held accountable? Yeah. I guess um, like when you're being held accountable for schoolwork, it can like teach you like skills, I guess, such as like organized your time management mm -hmm. like yeah well and what if Red didn't hold you accountable and just sort of said well turn it in when you turn it in what would be the, the experience in this class so what other for an organization what other benefits could there be for 
when nonprofits are held accountable, what, what are some of the, how could that be beneficial? So it's it's a way to almost sort of mark, like, have we accomplished stuff and what have we accomplished yet? Yeah. They would have, like, a better representation because people would know that they, like, stay on top of what they need to do. Uh-huh. So there's a, a level of professionalism. I mean, I think, in, in my experience, the nonprofit that I always think is not really held accountable or doesn't meet its expectations is the YMCA. So we belong to the local YMCA, and it's a nonprofit. Like, the schedule like I'll go there to show up to work out or to swim and the pool will be closed and I'll look at the schedule and the schedule says that it's supposed to be open and they're like, oh yeah, we didn't update it. And I'm like, well, they don't even put a schedule up if it's not going to be accurate. And part of it is they say, well, you know, we're a nonprofit, we're understaffed, we're, you know, and they give all these excuses. And I'm like, well, but you don't have to be. Don't use that as, as the excuses. And so there needs to be a higher level of accountability. But there's sometimes, especially with nonprofits, it's like, oh, well, we're a nonprofit, as if that's the excuse or explanation. From the Worth chapter, you know, it talks about the benefits, but there's also some some drawbacks to being held accountable. What would be some what would be some downsides to being held accountable that you could think of? Like the law. Okay, in what ways? You know, if if you do something illegal, then you're held accountable for doing doing the time in jail. Okay. So you're saying the consequences. But what about just the few yeah. We might try to do less that way they don't have to be held accountable for things that they might not be able to get done. Okay, so they would sort of set the bar really low so that because they know they're gonna be held accountable, so you would just make the level really low so it's easy to do and not really aim any higher. Yeah. Any other uh, drawbacks or, or downsides? That you can just think of situations where you're held accountable and it just it's annoying, it's time consuming, it's a waste of time. Any examples here? I feel like I mean there are certain like psychological situations where like if you're held accountable to uh, a pool, for example, like I was lifeguard, uh, <clears throat> if we're held accountable to the people who come through and are like, did you meet the safety and health standards? Mm -hmm. Sometimes they come in and you know we'll get in trouble for things that we usually do. Uh -huh. And so you sort of learn the system of being like, okay, well we really only need to be like really great on this day when uh -huh. health and safety uh -huh. people come in. Uh -huh. And so then you know you focus more energy on that when you could be focusing it more on just like being a good pool all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean so that's just like sure. one thing I didn't understand I lived in a house on campus and a fire marshal would come once a year to do the fire inspection to make sure we met the fire safety standards, but the fire marshal would send us an email a couple days before and let us know, hey, I'm going to be coming by to inspect your house. Yeah. And so then we go through and we clean up all the trash and we make sure everything meets the standards when the fire marshal shows up. And I was always like, what? This seems so strange <laughs> because then every other day out of the year, we didn't meet the standards. So, pricing. The Bursar? The Bursar. Bursar bill. Yes. So, I mean, I know I was held accountable for like $1,000 uh -huh. last year, but I paid. So, I, and, and so the consequences are a whole other story, but really it's sometimes the accountability. So I'll give you one. I try to hold you accountable to reading these chapters and the way that I hold you accountable is to write these memos. And some of you might experience the memos as like, ah, I gotta write another memo. Why do I have to write a memo? It's just extra burden, time consuming, and I don't like that process. And so my purpose <coughs> for holding you accountable is burdensome. And it's like, well, Professor Fulton, just trust 
then I'll read the chapter. Why do, you, why do you need me to write a memo? But I need some sort of mechanism in place to hold you accountable to read the memo. And so it goes much larger to organizations. There's a lot of times paperwork or regulations where you have to fill things out. And it's like, it's a burden. It takes time. And we're going to talk more about this as sort of the regulations of the nonprofit sector and how that actually costs nonprofits time and resources that could otherwise be spent doing, you know, fulfilling the mission of the organization. And so there's there's benefits to accountability and, in a sense, making sure the organization is doing what they say they're doing, but there's also costs. There's drawbacks to that. So then the question would be, should certain organizations or, or people be held to higher levels of accountability? Like, would you guys, just in, in your own sense, are there, are there certain groups or organizations where you're like, Oh yeah, it's important that they be held to a higher level of accountability. Or should every every organization in, in person sort of have the same expectations? Uh, it's brought, yeah. So you're saying that nonprofits, your sense is that or depending on what they do, should determine how the, the level of, of accountability. Like others like there's like other other nonprofits and there's like community welfare. It's like two different groups and I think the like community one obviously like so, like, especially if you're a public serving organization where the public would there would be dire consequences if if I didn't, the organization didn't meet the standards or wasn't held to a high standard. So, the, the public serving aspect. Any other organizations or, or types of people? Okay, we read an article yesterday about like, um, Lady Gaga and Kanye West, and Kanye West was supposed to help her tour, uh-huh. and he kept bashing people get on stage, take the microphone from Taylor Swift, bash her, and try to get Beyonce to get the award, and then finally, like, the industry was like, you need to take a break. And then he goes, in 2009, he does it again. And basically left Lady Gaga standing alone. So Kanye should be held to a higher standard? Yeah, well, that's celebrities. Celebrities, okay. So yeah, the, the high-profile people, whether it's celebrities, you know, uh, an example related to that is sort of the, the personal lives of celebrities. Should they, you know, in a sense, they are role models on some level. And so and if they do something that's unethical, they get targeted, um, and is that is that fair that they should be held to a higher standard? Even more so, politicians or business leaders. You know, if, if you think on the personal level, should they be held to higher scrutiny uh, or a higher standard? Whereas the rest of the public, it's okay if sort of skirt by with some of these things. And so the question is, especially with organizations. You know, how accountable should they be and should certain organizations be held to a higher standard? And in that is nonprofits, or as Carly mentioned, like especially the public serving nonprofits. And so these are all questions that are debated over time. It's sort of, well, how accountable should organizations and institutions be held? Like IU as an institution, how accountable should we be to providing a safe space on campus for students? So that's, that's one big issue, whether it be related to race or related to sexual violence of some kind. Like, should universities be held to a higher standard to provide a safe space compared to a neighborhood or other community institutions? 
And so we're going to talk about, in a sense, all three sectors, so the government, companies, private companies, and then nonprofits, and sort of see how they're all three these, these major institutions, but they are treated in terms of accountability in different ways. And so if you think about governments, so your local government, your state government, or the federal government, who are governments accountable to? Who do they have to give an account to? Yeah. People who have each other country. Okay. So the people that they're governing. Okay. So in a sense, yeah, the, the governments, especially if, if you know, you're looking at, say, Bloomington City Council, they're accountable to the citizens of Bloomington. You know, it doesn't matter what, you know, Indianapolis people think about the city council in Bloomington. <coughs> the city council in Bloomington is only accountable to the people that they're assigned to serve the people of Bloomington. And so if you think about governments are accountable to the people that they're serving, like it's, it's just a clear line, what leverage do the people have? So in a sense, the people are holding the political officials accountable to do what they said they would do. And what leverage do the people have? Yeah. They elect them. Okay. So voting so they can they can choose to elect them or then not re-elect them when the next voting round comes in. So it's a pretty clear mechanism. Now it doesn't always work efficiently, but that's the mechanism. So when you think of the governments, government institutions or elected officials, they're held accountable by the public. And the leverage that the public has is ultimately their vote, whether or not you're going to vote for the person. So if you have a city council person or a state legislator who gets elected but then just sort of doesn't really fulfill his promises or doesn't do what she said that she would do, then that's going to hurt her when the next election cycle comes up. The people are not going to vote. They're going to you know, hold that official accountable to what they said they would do. And if they don't do it, they don't get reelected. So then if you think of companies, private companies, for-profit companies, who are they accountable to? And this gets a little bit more complicated. Yeah, it's accountable to shareholders. To shareholders, so the investors. So they, they have an obligation to the people who have given them money, invested money in them to make a profit. And so who else are they um, accountable to? Customers. Yeah. Customers, in what way? Like, so if they say they're bringing out a product or something, then they're going to have to bring it out at a certain date. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a quality product, and it's, it's going to satisfy their expectations. Customers, anyone else? IRS. Okay, so the, the, the government, they're accountable to the government, and specifically the IRS where, you know, they make a profit, they owe money, they have to give an account for how much money they made. So we, yeah. Employees. Oh, employees. So we have the investors, the customers, the government, and employees. And in, in, in what way are they accountable to the employees? Just to make sure that maybe they're supposed to get benefits or they're accountable and just being successful enough to be able to pay the employees or maybe give raises where raises are due. Yeah. So they made some commitment to the employees and they're accountable to fulfill those commitments. So even like, you know, if they're, as they're building, I mean, this is a government, private government connection, but the Highway 37 going up Indianapolis, the people doing the road work haven't been paid. And so then they said, okay, well, we're going to stop working construction. So we're going to put this, this construction project on pause because we haven't been paid. We're holding you accountable for your promises. And if you don't, we're going to stop working. This is ultimately what happens. 
So, so this is with governments and companies and the leverage. We sort of talked about this. Each person that holds the organization accountable has different forms of leverage. So with the investor, the investor withdraws his investment. Or with customers, if you consistently come out with a port, you know, say you, you run a restaurant and you just don't provide good food, the way that a customer votes or leverages their accountability is by not showing up again. They just stop coming and it hurts the business. An interesting one is with the government. The government can impose fines and penalties and, and stricter regulations. And then employees can quit. So in a sense, you have multiple actors and stakeholders who are holding private companies accountable and they have different forms of leverage they can use. In some ways, huge companies like, you know, I have Sprint cell phone and I'm a dissatisfied customer because poor coverage, but I don't have much leverage. I mean, I threatened to say, I'm going to leave you guys. <laughs> They're like, fine. You know, there, there's, there's little consequence. And so there's different levels of leverage, but if you, if you organize and you have a class action lawsuit and you have thousands of people who are suing Sprint or whatever organization, then you actually have a lot more leverage to hold them accountable. Like when they said we would deliver this type of service or this type of product and they didn't and they violated their contract, then you have greater leverage. When we talk about accountability, you know, what actors are involved, but then also what leverage do they have? And if, and if you don't have much leverage, Again, even with like government officials with voting, if it's just one person's upset, well, I'm not going to vote for you, the person would be like, fine, you know, it doesn't matter. But if you organize a couple thousand people in Bloomington to go to the mayor and say, hey, we're really upset. You promised to put in a park here and you've consistently pushed that down the road and you're never delivering on it. And we have, you know, signatures of 5,000 people who are very upset about this the mayor is going to take greater attention to your complaint versus if you just go in as one person and say, how come we don't have our park? So leverage is an important aspect of accountability. And if you don't have that leverage, if you don't have sort of the, the ability to enforce it, then the power to, to hold an organization accountable is, is reduced. And so this segues into sort of nonprofits. So nonprofits have this unique standing in society. They're this third sector which sort of function independent of the government. They're sort of an alternative to the government. And they also are very much about self-regulation. Like the whole design of them is that they be independent and that they would then self-regulate. And so the question is, and this is an ongoing debate in, in public policy, is how involved should the government be in holding nonprofit organizations accountable? Oh, you guys took the middle of the road. So for the people who said that they should be, uh, that the government should be heavily involved, what are some of the reasons? Oh. Yeah. Because nonprofits are the source of funding. Okay. So if you're, and that's a great point, if you're a grantee of the government, then there are extra regulations or, or sort of standards that you have to meet, especially like different equal opportunity laws are held more tightly if you're a grantee of the government or if you're a government contractor you have to sort of the hiring that you do or even sending out soliciting <coughs> you're held to a higher standard if you're given government money then you should be held to a high standard by the government. Other people who would say, yeah, I think it should skew towards that the government should be heavily, more heavily involved. Yeah. Well, I actually thought it was for moderate, but 
maybe a reason for heavily would be that the people that the government is accountable to for uh, those are the people that are also being served by the nonprofit organization. Okay. So technically, like they're the same. Okay. And the government sort of has the authority to enforce it, whereas the public, it's harder for them to force an organization to comply with certain standards and regulations. So that the government acts as sort of an authoritative body. For the people who said less involved, or you know, like the government should sort of just stay out. What are some of the reasons for that? Like minimally involved, yeah. I think that even if the government weren't involved, other watchdogs would arise because the public would decide that they want a certain nonprofit to be accountable, and so they would create an organization to keep them accountable. So it's so if, if for whatever reason the government poured out and didn't regulate, someone would fill that vacuum mm -hmm. and provide some sort of regulation because it costs the government a lot of money to regulate organizations. So it isn't sort of this benevolent thing that they do. It's like oh, yeah, you know, <laughs> the world so we're going to regulate you is it actually when the government decides to regulate an industry like the environmental protection agency like that costs a lot of money to regulate the environment mm -hmm. i also feel like there could be more efficient uh, like organizations who are more specialized who could regulate more effectively okay more you know some government committee okay so you would sort of be an advocate for in a sense smaller government in that in that respect, and, and outsource it to other organizations. So this is where the aspects of the third sector are very interesting, especially the history of the third sector, and specifically in the U.S., how the third sector, the nonprofit sector, was set up. So on one level, and what Carly was referring to is that nonprofits are working with the public's money. So they're serving the public, so the public needs to be protected. Sort of like what Thomas said, you're providing the service, then you kind of make sure that it's, it's ethical and that it's not harmful to the people and that it's actually serving them in a positive way because the nonprofit sector has sort of set itself up to provide a public service for some nonprofit organizations. That's their focus, is to provide a public benefit. And so then there should be, in a sense, public accountability. But on the flip side, nonprofits are set up to function independent of the government. And so this, this idea of freedom of association, the whole design of it was that you could have your own entity or organization that can function without government oversight. And so the, the best example would be uh, religious organizations. And so this was emphatic, it says in the constitution, the freedom of religion, in that, that the government wouldn't sort of step in and regulate how a church functions or what a church believes or what its members do. And in fact, churches don't pay taxes for that reason. Because if you, if you pay taxes, then there's this relationship between your organization and the government. There's expectations that they'll provide. You're paying taxes for certain services and, and churches, religious bodies would say, so we want to actually function independent of the government. And so, but it's, it's not just churches, it's any type of member-serving organization. So an organization with a certain ideology wants to have freedom of association without government regulation or intervention. And so the, the tension within the nonprofit sector and government regulation is a lot of people in the third sector of the nonprofit sector would say the whole point of the nonprofit sector is to have freedom from regulation. 
from the government oversight. So the government should not be involved at all. And probably the best counterexample would be China, in that government oversight is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. There is no independent sector, at least in the federal sense, in China, because the government regulates everything. If there's anything in China that's going on as the third sector, it's underground. So there's the underground church in China, which operates independent of the government. But for the most part, the government's involved in everything. And there's in every group is regulated and, and monitored by the government. The US is a different system where there's this real resistance to overregulation. And so that's sort of the, the backdrop of the government and the relationship between the government and nonprofits. And it's, it's always sort of been going back and forth in terms of the level of regulation because it costs the government, but it also costs the nonprofit. The more regulations that are imposed on a nonprofit, the time and resources it costs to fulfill them. So then the government is saying, we need to protect the public, and so it's, we need to have these regulations. So let's see, okay, so I covered most of this. The, the idea of maintaining independence is, is one reason to keep the government out. So it's the hands-off approach. That these, these organizations should be running on their own without government intervention. And so what you notice, and this is all throughout work, and it's, I mean, not just in this chapter, but almost every chapter, there's no real clear laws, like you can't do this. And, and it always sort of bothered me when I was first exposed to the nonprofit sector, nonprofit law and regulation, because it was always sort of couched in principles, suggestions, and best practices. I don't know if you noticed that as you read, but it, was, it wasn't black and white. It was more recommendations. And the reason behind that is, is because there is a hands-off approach. There are, the, the regulations are more, hey, if you want to run a good organization that's going to be successful, here's what we recommend you doing. But if you don't do it, you're not breaking the law. And, you know, there's no one who's seen how much of your money can be spent on overhead or on other aspects. But the principles or practices are these things. At the end of the day, so if you, again, you think of churches where the pastor is paid a large amount of money and, and the housing stipend that the pastor receives seems incommensurate with, with the rest of the people in the congregation are, are making and living, but they're allowed to do that. They're self-regulated. There isn't the government coming in saying you can't do that. Now they can give recommendations or, or best practices, but there's no laws that sort of govern what nonprofits can and cannot do, or at least the number of laws that are out there are much lower, fewer than they are for private companies. And the idea is that these organizations would be self-regulating. So self-regulating, we're gonna talk about this a little bit more, but basically, it's not the government regulating what these organizations do. And part of it is, is because they are designed to be independent of the government, to function as their own entity, and sort of sense be immune to government intervention. In a sense, again, you can use China as the example, if you have an organization that goes in opposition to the government or goes in a direction that deviates from what the government wants, in China, if you have an organization like that, it gets shut down because it, it, it goes against what the government wants. But in the US, if you have an organization that goes against maybe what the government is wanting or advocating, the amazing thing about the US is that you're allowed to function as that organization. You have the freedom of association, and the government won't come in and shut you down. 
And so that's a, a very unique aspect, partly to the U.S., but also to the democratic nations in the world, that there is this idea of freedom of association without government intervention. And regulation is often the ways that government enforces sort of controls organizations. And in the U.S., the culture, the way, the history, is that the government wouldn't have as much imposing or regulations on nonprofits. It's a larger political discussion where you think, well, how does this relate to running a nonprofit? But you gotta know the sort of the context in which nonprofits exist in the US. So then who are nonprofits? <coughs> if we sort of are saying, well, really, the government might sort of have some ideas or best practices, but ultimately nonprofits have minimal accountability to the government, who are nonprofits accountable to? Who are the different stakeholders? Yeah. Oh, I guess like whoever they're serving. Okay. So their clients that they would have. Okay. So the clients, who else would they be accountable to? Yeah. Really anybody who wants them to be accountable to. Like, you know how we read about how one certain nonprofit wasn't doing, they were doing something financially corrupt. Uh -huh. So like if you're a angry enough citizen, you could do, you could take action to like do anything against them. You know, okay. so you could have power as just anybody who felt who has a vested interest yeah. in that organization. Okay. And it's not like a nice answer, but... Well, but so if, I, if I'm running a nonprofit and I'm doing, let's say I'm, uh, I don't know, I have some extreme view and there's groups that are just outraged in my extreme views and they make a big fuss about it, I'm still not accountable to that. All the bad press that they try to give me actually might help my organization because it pulls people who have a similar view as me. So, in a sense, just because someone doesn't like me doesn't mean I'm accountable to them. But I see what you're saying is that, yeah, what if people within the organization or within the constituency base was, was upset, they could launch a campaign to sort of expose the unethical behavior or expose the exploitation that's going on in some way. And then, if I want to sustain myself as an organization, I need to address the grievances of my constituencies. But if I have another group that just doesn't like what I'm about, then they don't have much recourse. They're not giving money to begin with, they're not sending people to our events, they just are upset with us. Yeah. So, so you need to have the leverage, <laughs> is sort of the part of the mechanism there. So we have clients, we have constituents, what other people would, are nonprofits accountable to? Yeah. I think the community as a whole that they serve, that uh -huh. uh, could be nationally, internationally, or in the local community, mm -hmm. is bringing together an issue or a problem that they have and being able to address it in a way. Uh -huh. so you, do you have an example? Like One, we talked about Red Cross uh -huh. and how the smaller chapters as well as the national organization and also they go and do relief outside of the United States at times when people need it. Uh -huh. So being able to be accountable to the area and maybe the area isn't as strong as it needs to be. Uh -huh. So being able to find out where different chapters are being successful and helping them out so that all the communities are at least help through there. And even though that is pretty structured from the government uh -huh. um, and things that they do there, but they still independently do like, run their organization. Yeah. Well, and so related to the Red Cross is these watchdog groups. So you have the constituencies, but then you also have these independent groups that will basically say, okay, Red Cross, you said that you were going to spend money in this way. 
and if they go in and look to see if you actually spent the money in the way that you said you would, and if you didn't, then they expose you as sort of not fulfilling your commitments or promises. And so, and that's like how the, the Red Cross got a bad reputation was because of these watchdog groups. That these independents, so it's not the government coming in and saying the Red Cross isn't doing it, but it's a third party that has a vested interest in making sure charitable organizations do what they say they're going to do. And then again, the same thing is like what leverage do the different organizations have? And that's why these watchdog groups have more leverage because they have public relations. Yeah. Um, do you feel like for for-profit companies and maybe some government officials or government groups that they kind of set a lower standard for accountability by minimizing leverage because they can pay for legal fees and lawyers and whatnot? So I feel like I've seen that so many times where a big company is able to have that legal power and sure. kind of minimizes the accountability there. Yeah, the, the, the consequences are small compared to the potential gains. So you're saying that private companies, the leverage that the government has is still kind of weak. Like, so if, if you have banks that have, you know, you think of Wells Fargo, like, you know, Wells Fargo opened up millions of accounts without users knowing about it, and the government, you know, called in the CEO and the question that CEO isn't facing any legal implications at this point, and, and it's He's serving after account for what he did, and this is what he did was wrong, but what are the real consequences that they'll face? I feel like that maybe could raise the accountability in nonprofits, because like not a lot of nonprofits couldn't handle uh -huh. legal bills. Yeah, they come get him sued if they um, someone felt like they weren't yeah. being responsible. Yeah, so the regulations are more costly. For nonprofits, and so we're going to watch a quick um, video just so you guys will understand this because it comes up throughout uh, nonprofit stuff. It's the Sarbanes Oxley Act, and basically, Sarbanes Oxley was the SOC, called SOCS for short, but it's basically after 2002 with Enron and Tyco and WorldCom, all these major corporations were basically cooking the books, their financial books, and it created this, this meltdown in the, in the financial sector. And so the government stepped in and sort of imposed all these regulations. And how it relates to the nonprofits is that they're not required to follow it, but they were highly recommended to follow Sarbanes-Oxley. I'm gonna just show the, the quick video on it so that you can, when people talk about Sarbanes-Oxley, you can be like, Okay, that's how this all fits into the nonprofit sector. The Sarbanes Oxley Act of 2002 is a legislative response to a number of corporate scandals that sent shockwaves through the world financial markets. Some of the biggest issues involved Enron, Tyco, and WorldCom. The Sarbanes-Oxley Act, commonly referred to as SOX, attempts to strengthen corporate oversight and improve internal corporate control. The main purpose of SOX is to protect shareholders from fraudulent representations in corporate financial statements. Investors need to know that the financial information they rely on is truthful and that an independent third party has verified its accuracy. SOX is a long and complicated law, but it has a few key provisions. Section 302 requires that corporate 
management certify that they have reviewed the financial statements and that they are accurate and truthful. Section 401 requires that financial information include disclosures about any relevant off-balance sheet obligations that may exist. Section 404 requires management to state whether or not the company's internal control procedures are adequate and effective. Section 404 has costly implications for publicly traded companies, as it is expensive to establish and maintain the required internal controls. Section 409 requires management to update the public of significant financial matters when they happen, rather than wait until the quarterly or annual report. Section 802 imposes penalties for violations of the SOX rules, which can include fines or even jail time. So, um, you know, I, I love how it says Section 404, Section 801. So now imagine this is a huge regulatory thing that was instituted. It has huge consequences on nonprofits, not because they have to, but it changed the industry of how you're doing financial reporting. And if any of your parents are in the financial sector and you just mentioned Sarbanes-Oxley, you'll see a grimace come upon the face because it's this huge burden to make sure that they're actually, that their financial records and statements are clean and clean, or that there isn't unethical stuff going on, or that they aren't hiding stuff. And what it means for the nonprofit sector is the expectation is that they, the nonprofit sector, abide by these these rules. Now they're not required to, but it's strongly recommended. And that goes back to the government can't force you to, but there's good business practices. And there's reasons why Sarbanes Oxley was instituted because people weren't following good practices financially speaking.